Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. I want to begin this morning by, summarize, by summarizing and recapturing what we have seen in this series. So just go message by message in just a short encapsulation. And the reason for that is I want to put it all together and then connect that with Ephesians chapter 6. And hopefully we can go away with a full picture here of what it means to live in God's Holy Spirit as believers in Jesus Christ. We began 10 weeks ago by looking at the need for the Spirit, the failure of ancient Old Testament Israel. We looked at the book of Deuteronomy and we found that over and over in Deuteronomy, we found that Israel was not equipped to fulfill God's law as he had given it to them. God's law plus our own human ability does not lead to the righteousness that God requires. Deuteronomy teaches us the decisive cause of all human righteousness is not us. Righteousness for justification, righteousness for sanctification, the decisive cause of all human righteousness is not the powers of our own ability. Man's will is bound in sin. Paul tells us that the natural man is unable to obey God's law. He says that it is impossible. And so since the fall of man, apart from the life of Jesus of Nazareth, the sheer force and power of the human will has never produced a single particle of righteousness in the history of this world. And even Israel's righteous deeds in response to God's law, where they did seemingly obey, God says, Their righteous deeds were like filthy garments. The law does not produce and lead to righteousness. The second message that we looked at was the promise of God's Holy Spirit in response to that need. This was the glory of the new covenant. The central promise of the new covenant that God gives to us is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we saw that when the Spirit finally comes in answer to the promises of the new covenant, when the Spirit arrives, it will be the beginning of a new era in world history. In fact, Paul divides all of human history into two eras. We saw this in Galatians. There was the era of the law and the flesh and sin. And then there is the era of faith and the Spirit and Jesus Christ. We live today in the era of promise the era of the Spirit, the era of faith. And when the Spirit comes, He will bring with Him all of the blessings of God's new covenant. Christ has died. He has ascended to pour out the promises of the new covenant upon us. And the Spirit is the one who brings them all to us. It is by the Spirit that we are united to Christ and become partakers of all of the benefits of His redemption. The central promise of the new covenant is the promise of the Spirit and He comes to introduce to us then an entirely new way of living. One can live in the flesh or now one can live in the Spirit. Paul says that we have been severed from the law by the sacrifice of Christ and now we serve God no longer in the old way by the letter. Now we serve God in the new way by the Spirit. And having the Spirit then is what it means to live in this new era. To be a participant in the new covenant is to possess the Spirit. And that means that life in the Spirit is what it means to live as a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? 
It means to possess the Spirit and live your life in Him. We who have the Spirit live in this new era. It is a new world that has dawned since the Spirit has come. God has given us His Spirit, and that is what we have been exploring. What it means to live in this new world, the world of the Spirit. The third message we looked at dealt with the arrival of the Spirit. Messiah came. The legacy that He left behind was the Spirit. And just as at the creation of the world, when the Spirit of God brooded over the creation of the world, so we saw in the Gospel of Luke that the Spirit of God brooded over the creation of the body of Jesus of Nazareth, the first bit of matter in this new world. At His baptism, the Spirit descended upon Christ. We saw that throughout His entire ministry, Christ ministered in the power of of the Holy Spirit and he came to the end of his ministry in John and promised us that he would send the Spirit upon us to take his place. And so just before his ascension, Jesus breathed upon his disciples, recreating that moment in the Garden of Eden when God breathed into man's nostrils the breath or the spirit of life. And then he ascended to heaven and 10 days later he poured out on the day of Pentecost the Spirit first upon Jews, and then later in the house of Cornelius, he began his work to pour out his Spirit upon all flesh, upon the Gentiles also. And now, if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Jesus has come to bring us the Spirit And through His Spirit now, He is breathing new life into this dead world, recreating a new human race, creating a whole new world by His Spirit. So what does that mean for us now that the Spirit has come? What does it mean to live as a follower of Jesus Christ? The first thing it means is the Spirit has come and created unity. We are one body in Christ. God created the human race in His image. The human race in the beginning was one. Man and woman, one. Man and God united together. One with God, one with itself. That was the human race. But sin has divided the human race. And it started by dividing us from God. And as a result, it drove a wedge between man and man. And the history of the world has been a story of conflict and discord between men. But God determined to reclaim the world. He determined he would would do it by covenant. And so he launched the covenant with Israel as a picture of what he would do with the entire earth. From out of the midst of the nations, by his choice, by his calling, by his covenant, God created a people. By his electing grace, By his covenant, he drew many sons of Abraham together into one nation, a nation that was God's nation. It was not ultimately because they were all sons of Abraham that these people dwelt together as a nation. It was because of God's covenant to make them his people. It was God's election and covenant that created a holy nation, a people for his name. It was a covenant that relied upon human ability for success. And so as a result, this covenant that created the nation of Israel fell apart. The nation 
that unity was dissolved and once again the people of Israel were scattered amongst the nations from which they had originally been brought out. But God issued a new covenant. The center of this covenant was the promise of the Spirit. The Spirit would come. He would create a new body, a new nation, a new people. But unlike ancient Israel, this body would be a multi-ethnic body. Many members, many nations, many peoples, all summed up in one body. And Jesus worked to pour out the Spirit upon all flesh that began at Pentecost, that continued in Cornelius' house, that has continued to this day. It has had a surprising effect. All of Christ's followers have been baptized in the Holy Spirit, into the body of Christ. And the result is that now we, who were many, are now all one body in Christ Jesus. And that means that God is not merely interested in saving individuals. He is interested in putting this entire universe back together. He's interested in restoring the oneness of this world. He's interested in creating peace, in restoring men to God through Christ and through the Spirit who joins men together into Christ's body to restore them to one another through Christ and His Spirit. And through Paul's pen, God has made known to us that this is the mystery of His will. Ephesians chapter 1. Christ will be the head of all things one day and the effect will be that it will all be united under his headship. But he has begun to unfold that plan now. Christ is the head of the body, the church. And in the church, we see God's plan to unify in Christ, one new man. We see it accomplished today. He is creating a new man, a new people, a people for his own possession. How is God going to form this people? And the answer is by his covenant, the new covenant, which pours out upon us the spirit. And this then is the blessed privilege of being part of a local church. The spirit is the one who gathers together the members in a local church. He gathers them together in a visible unity. Unity created by the pouring out of the spirit. Our part is not to create the unity. Our part is to maintain it. We are to live externally in line with the internal realities. We are one body in Christ. And we must endeavor to maintain that unity. This is how God is bringing the universe back to the state of Eden. Local churches operating with Christ Jesus as head. They are previews of the unity of the world that Christ will achieve when he is head over all things. Part of life in the Spirit then is living in the unity that the Spirit creates. No strife, no quarreling, sharing material things, loving one another with the love of Christ, forgiving one another, praying for one another, helping each other to grow up into Christ, our head. And so we saw in our fifth message that we are spiritual consumers and spiritual producers. This is what it means to live in the body of Christ. The shape that our salvation takes is that it doesn't produce individual saints bound for heaven only. It produces a group of us who are bound for heaven. It produces a body. And who is a part of that body? Who possesses the Spirit? The answer is all who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And within that body, 
within that group of confessors of Jesus Christ as Lord. There are many gifts. There are many members. And yet, by the work of the Spirit, they dwell together in unity. Why has the Spirit put it together like this? Many members, one body. And the answer that 1 Corinthians 12 gives us is because we need one another. The Spirit has thought that the members of my church are necessary to my own spiritual growth. And for that reason, He has included them. And that means that, number one, it is those members, the ones in my church, who are most needful to my spiritual health and vitality. It's the Spirit of God who has put us together. And that very act means that we must bestow upon the saints in our own local church the honor that they are the ones who are needful for my spiritual growth and health and vitality. And so when we gather as saints, when we gather in local churches, the members who are there are there by the work of God's Spirit. He is the one who thinks that these are the ones who are necessary to my spiritual growth. Secondly, it means that every member of the body of Christ is a spiritual consumer. We were not made to survive as Christians with just me and my Bible. God made you to be a consumer of the Spirit's ministry in the body of Christ. And He has gifted the other members to contribute to your spiritual growth. The very shape of our salvation demands that we understand the Christian life, life in the Spirit, in this way. And third, this means that every member of the body of Christ must be a spiritual producer. He has gifted us as He wills so that we may contribute to the growth and health of the other members of Christ's body. No member of Christ's body can merely sit back and take in. He has been put in the body, and the very fact that God has included him in the body with his particular gifts bestows great honor upon him and his gift. The Spirit's action to include him is God's way of saying to him, this is a gift that you possess that this body cannot get along without. The sixth message we had was titled, The Paradigm of the Gospel, The Decisive Cause of All Human Righteousness. The coming of the Spirit creates a body and gifts, and that is how we grow up. But the Spirit not only dwells within the church, the Spirit dwells within individual human hearts. And what is the effect of Him and His ministry in my heart? We notice from Galatia, the book of Galatians, that false teachers had penetrated that church. And they had come with a worldview that man is alive, that he lives, that he is strong, that he can accomplish things. And behind the teaching of the false teachers at Galatia was the assumption that man is able. He can contribute. His will can explain certain advances in holiness. Man can self-actualize. He is able to rise to become what God requires of him or even to make positive steps forward on the path of obtaining God's blessing. Our own flourishing lies within the reach of every human being. But Paul leads off the epistle to the Galatians with a description of the gospel that is utterly incompatible with such an idea. It's not just that certain pieces of Paul's gospel had been misplaced and the order jumbled up a bit. It was that the false teachers had introduced an entirely new gospel. So new that Paul can say it was no gospel at all. It may bear some external resemblance to Paul's gospel, but at its heart, 
it arises from a completely different view of man and God and the world and salvation. The good news that Paul proclaims is that while man lay bound and dead in sin, God has acted to bring deliverance. He has promised. God has called. He is the one who is justified. It is Christ who has died. God has raised him from the dead. God's word is sure. And there is nothing left for man to contribute to his own salvation. Instead, as we look upon the work of God on the cross, we are confronted with the choice as to where we will place our confidence. Will we respond by transferring all of our confidence from ourselves to Christ? Or will we continue to regard ourselves as able to attain the blessing of God or at least to contribute something to it? God simply looks for a heart whose confidence rests in Christ and Christ alone, not in itself for righteousness and blessing and the hope of eternal life. And when this gospel is preached, Paul says, God alone gets the glory. So it's by this paradigm, by this pattern, that righteousness is from God alone. It is by this paradigm that we are saved. And it is by this paradigm that we are still being saved. The decisive cause of all human righteousness before God is God alone. And the gospel then is the cross upon which we may crucify our own self-sufficiency day by day. The cross then, the gospel trains us how to live. It robs us of all of our self-confidence and requires that we lay our lives and our faith down at the feet of Jesus Christ. We turn then to considering what it means to abide in Christ. This is the path to fruitfulness. Before returning to the Father, Christ issued a command, love one another as I have loved you. How can we love as Christ has loved? The answer that he gives us is by abiding in Christ. He is the vine, we are the branches. By abiding in Christ, he will produce in us his fruits. Just as the Father was in Christ, So that Christ could say, the words and works that you see are not mine, they are the Father's who sent me. So Christ is in us as we abide in him. So that the words and the works that we do are not ours, they are his words and works. They are his love that flows out of us. And in this then the Father is glorified. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But if he dwells within us, then we can love as he has loved. What does it mean to abide in Christ? We looked then at Galatians 2, that it means to live by faith in the Son of God. The secret Christians must understand is that their pursuit of experiential righteousness, day by day righteousness, growth in holiness, the pursuit of that kind of righteousness for sanctification proceeds on the same basis as our pursuit of positional righteousness for justification. It is always obtained by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so in addition to showing how our union with Christ is the source of all of our righteousness that we need to be justified, Paul also takes time in Galatians to show how union with Christ, not our own self-effort, supplies the necessary righteousness we need to be sanctified. We looked then at Paul's life of self-sufficiency before his death with Christ. 
We looked at that decisive moment of death when he was crucified with Christ. And we looked then at what his life looked like after his death with Christ. Now he says he lives by faith in the Son of God. He lives by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And he gets the Spirit by hearing with faith. We turn then to look at the alternative to the Spirit, and that is living in the flesh, living in self-confidence. We are all fallen human beings. In us dwells nothing good. To depend upon our own human ability then is futile. It is foolish. The law is the primary threat to our service to God and the Spirit. What will keep you from walking in the Spirit? And for conscientious Christians, one of the primary threats is actually God's law. The law arouses sin that dwells in us because our conscience tells us that the law condemns us. And so that arouses our animosity against God. But the law also pushes us towards self-reliance. It says, here's the law, now you can do it. When in actual point of fact, we cannot. Relying upon self for righteousness is foolish, Paul says. And so Paul lays down the cross to sever our relationship to the law. The cross crucifies my self-reliance. The cross teaches me that righteousness is not possible by the law because of the weakness of my flesh. It teaches me not to rely upon myself and it silences my conscience. It puts to rest the animosity of my heart against God who condemns me by his law. And so as a result, now I am able to obey God. I'm able to love him. And I'm able to love the law that he has put in place, that he calls me to obey. The cross then makes genuine obedience possible. And now we have the possibility of serving God in the new way by the Spirit. And we concluded by noting that this matter is deadly serious. Because Paul tells us in Romans 8 verse 13 that if you live your life according to the flesh, you will die. If that is the pattern of your life, the end of that pattern of life is death. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Why? Because my obedience allows me to achieve God's blessings? No. Instead, it's because all of those who are putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit possess the Spirit who gives life to the bodies of fallen human beings. And so we concluded last week with walking in the Spirit, our participation in our sanctification the Spirit, we noted, aims to produce in us fruit. And the first of those fruits is love. Love, Paul says, fulfills the law. And so we notice that the ways of the old covenant, the law, and the ways of the new covenant are the same. In both cases, we are to love. The greatest two commandments of the old covenant law, to love and to love. Christ says to us, the new commandment is to love. And that is the product of the Spirit of God in us. The new covenant does not produce a lawless people. It aims to produce holiness and righteousness by a different means than the old covenant. 
No longer do we serve God through our own efforts to keep His law. Now we serve by the Spirit who works in us. And that's exactly what Paul means when he says that the Spirit bears His fruits in us. Love, the fulfillment of the law, is the work of the Spirit in me. God gives me His Spirit. He causes me to walk in His ways. And walking in the Spirit then is a matter of humbly depending upon God's Holy Spirit in faith to produce in me the fruits of righteousness as I strive to live as Christ has commanded. Walking in the Spirit is a matter of participating in God's work to sanctify me. It isn't that God is working in spite of me. It isn't that God is working instead of me. It is that God is working in me and through me, through my own efforts and actions as I rely upon the Spirit for power to live the Christian life. He produces His fruits in me. And so now, with all of that in mind, let's look at Ephesians 6 briefly. Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll read verses 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. We live in this fallen, evil world. We live, as it were, as citizens of a new world that is coming. And yet, we still live in the midst of this world. And the world and the devil are intent on upending your Christian life and overturning it. We face temptations to sin every day. It's a dangerous situation out there. And this passage tells us that the warfare that we fight is not against flesh and blood. The enemy is not the people that you live with. It's not their fault that you are tempted to sin. The battle is not between two human beings. Do we sufficiently understand that the battle actually takes place in a world that we can't even see? Satan has a distinct advantage over us because to him, it's all very real. It's as real to him, this invisible world, as is this world to us. He lives in that unseen world every day and from behind the curtain that separates the invisible and the visible world, from behind that curtain, 
Satan sees us making our way across the stage of our life, and his intention is to devour us, Peter tells us. We battle spiritual forces in heavenly places who we cannot even see. And so Paul concludes his letter to the Ephesians with a final note, verse 10. His exhortation is to be strong. And that ought to surprise us in light of what we have seen with our series of life in the Spirit. Christ has said to us, apart from me, you can do nothing. And yet here he says, you be strong. But his exhortation is not merely you be strong in your own strength. His exhortation is be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The battle is spiritual. You wrestle against wicked spirits. Be strong in the Lord then. And being strong in the Lord and in the power of his might in this passage is a matter of putting on the armor of God. You notice that in verse 12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our battle is in a spiritual world against spiritual forces. Therefore, verse 13, take up the armor of God. Not rouse yourself to your own strength, but take up the armor of God as your defense. In that way, we are prepared to stand against the schemes of the devil. What is this armor? that we are to take up. Well, it's actually not too hard to get your hands around all of it and to put a label over the top of it. Let's look at verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Truth about what? Look at the next phrase. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Whose righteousness? I heard a teacher one time say to us that the breastplate of righteousness is my own righteousness. If you just do right, you will be in a place to withstand the devil's attacks. I think that gets it back to front. Whose righteousness do we put on as a breastplate? It is Christ's own righteousness that guards us. Look at the next one. Verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, put on the readiness. Readiness for what? Readiness for the conflict. What makes you ready for the conflict? What is the God, what is the peace that guards you? Readiness that is given by the gospel of peace. The good news of your peace with God. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith by which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of, 1 Thessalonians 5 says, take the helmet of the hope of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What would you write across the top of these pieces of armor? Put them all together. What are they? The news of the gospel. It is the gospel that guards us in the evil day. And so Paul says, arm yourself with that like armor, that you may be able to stand. The news of the cross 
the news of the resurrection, the news of the salvation that God has brought to us, the news of our peace with God, these are the things that preserve us in the evil day. And Paul tells us at the end, I'm sorry, yes, at the end of verse 17, that we are to take up the sword of the Spirit. Of course, that's referring to the Word of God, the Bible. You want to live in the Spirit, not fulfill the desires of your flesh. You want to bring forth fruit. It doesn't happen without the Bible. Why? Because you're not going to be safe if you take up the worldview of our culture that you can be anything that you want to be or follow your own heart. You will only be safe if you take up the paradigm of the gospel. That all of your righteousness comes from outside of yourself and that that includes the righteousness you want to see in your life tomorrow morning. So take up the sword of the Spirit. And finally, and this is where we'll focus the majority of our time the rest of the morning, verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Prayer apparently is a critical component of the battle. And my question that I want to chase down this morning is this. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Praying at all times in the Spirit. We know what it means to pray. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? That phrase, pray in the Spirit, could mean several things. We'll look at what those might be in a minute. But here's the main question we need to settle. Okay? He says, pray in the Spirit. Is that verse calling us to get into the Spirit before we pray? Or is it saying, all of you who are in the Spirit, pray? In other words, do I have to do something to get myself into the Spirit and then I can pray? Or is he saying, you're in the Spirit, so pray in the Spirit? There's a striking passage that gives us, I think, an answer to that in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's turn back two pages. Paul is speaking to us here of our inclusion in the body of Christ as Gentiles. None of us here this morning are Jews. How do you get in to be a part of the people of God when God said in the Old Testament that it was Abraham's descendants who were his people? And the answer is, verse 17, Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Both Gentiles, the ones who were far off and those who were near, he came and preached peace to them. And now verse 18, for through him, through Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul's addressing Gentile believers with the assurance that they are in Christ. And that that means that Israel's Messiah dwells in their evil, sinful Gentile hearts. And that means that they're no longer strangers to God's covenants of promise. In Christ Jesus, they have been brought near and included in the body of Christ and Paul tells them then in verse 18 that they now have access, access to God. What do you think that means, that we have access to God? You ever relied upon your access to God? What did that look like? It meant you could go to him in prayer. Gentiles never used to be able to offer up prayers to God. They weren't his people. 
But now we have been included as Gentiles in the body of Christ, and now we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to God. How? How is it that we as Gentiles can lift up our voices and cry to the God of Abraham and expect that he would hear us? Why do we get to pray to Israel's God? And Paul's answer is that we have access in one spirit to the Father. And this is what we've seen in this series of messages on life in the Spirit. It's the Spirit who indwells God's children, binding them together into a single family, a single body, one bride for Christ. All of those who are in the Spirit are part of the body. They all now have access as children of God. Gentiles who pray to God are heard because His Spirit is in them. If you as a Gentile do not have the Spirit, God will not hear you. But when He looks and sees His Spirit in you, now you have access to Israel's God. And so in chapter 6, verse 18, when Paul says, pray in the Spirit, he's calling us to pray from that position. You are in the Spirit. Your life is in the Spirit. He dwells within you. Pray in the Spirit. What does that mean? It means two things. First of all, it means you are part of God's family. In the midst of the battle, you, a child of God, with His Spirit dwelling in you, will be heard when you call. The Spirit resides within you. And so God is as near to you as within your own breast in the heat of the battle. Do you actually believe that God's Spirit is within you to hear your cry in the battle? That you have the Spirit so that when you pray, God actually hears. The second thing this means to pray in the Spirit is this means that prayer becomes a means of achieving victory then in a spiritual battle. Listen to verse 12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. How are you going to win the battle then? You wrestle against forces that you can't even see. And the answer is in verse 17. Take up the sword of the Spirit and pray at all times in the Spirit. When Paul says, to he, says here that the sword is the sword of the Spirit, he could have just as easily substituted the word Scriptures, take up the Scriptures. Why did he call it the sword of the Spirit? He's not telling us where it came from. Instead, he's telling us why this sword will be effective in a spiritual battle. Because it is the sword of the Spirit. It will be effectual, effective in spiritual warfare. And the same is true with prayer. Pray in the Spirit. Prayer is an intensely spiritual exercise. It is done in the Spirit. Take away the Spirit and suddenly you can no longer pray. You can mouth words, but you won't be heard. But with the Spirit, in every spiritual battle, pray in the Spirit, is what Paul says. 
In other words, it's not, it's not that Paul's saying, well, you know, some days you'll end up praying, but it's not going to be in the Spirit. But other days you'll be in the Spirit, and so when you pray, you'll actually be praying in the Spirit. It's not that there's a form of prayer that's not in the Spirit and a form of prayer that is in the Spirit. Rather, every act of faithful prayer is prayer in the Spirit. And so in spiritual warfare, don't neglect to pray because your prayer is offered up in the Spirit. Prayer in the Spirit is a means of engaging in spiritual warfare. It is calling down the air cover that we need in the battle. So can we put all of this together? The armor of God. The gospel. The sword of the Spirit. Prayer in the Spirit. Do you want to stand firm? Take up the gospel. Take up the word. Take up prayer. This is how you stand strong in the Lord. If you attempt to conquer without your Bible, or forget the gospel, or without prayer, you may stand strong, but it won't be in the Lord or in the strength of His might, and you will fall. So take up the paradigm of the gospel, that all of your righteousness comes from outside of you, but that you do have righteousness before God through Christ. Take up the Spirit's sword, the Word of God. You must seize the words of Scripture that tell us what God has done and will do to bring us the victory. Read your Bible, first of all, not for what you must do, but for what God has done. Then stand up and do what He calls you to do in the confidence that He has done everything that is necessary for you to achieve success until the day of Christ. He has put His Spirit within you to fill you with hope and confidence that you will walk in His ways. Sanctification is guaranteed. It will happen. The gospel guarantees it. Combining this with a call to take up the whole armor of God, you can think about it this way. God gives us the gospel, the news of what he's done to propel us forward in sanctification. You take away that good news, every Christian falls down in despair. Give him the good news of the gospel back and he will press on and strain every muscle he will work out his salvation because he knows and believes and trusts and rests upon and can't imagine any chance of success at all apart from the good news that God will work the willing and the doing of his good pleasure as I labor to work out my own salvation. So hear him say to you every day as to the children pushing the vehicle, you push, I command you push, but I will run the winch and trust me for the outcome. And then you push because he has promised to run the winch. And third, pray in the spirit at all times in the midst of the battle. Prayer is how the Christian breathes in the heat of battle. Pray at all times as the battle is raging around you. It can never be neglected if you are to triumph. God gives his grace to triumph to those who humble themselves. And an attitude of humility can best be maintained by prayerfulness. I want to read you a brief texting conversation as we finish. This is me texting with a young man whose name is not William, but I'm going to call him William. William is deep in sin. And his sin has been ongoing for a while now at this point. And he and I had met and talked about it. And uh, I'd shared some of these things with him. And I'd encouraged him to go and speak with his parents about his need for help in this battle. I'd encouraged him to read the scriptures, to pray, to remember the gospel. 
So I texted him one day, hi William, I'm just checking in with you to see how you're doing. Are you taking time to read the scriptures and pray? Are you experiencing temptation? Have you shared your struggle with someone in your family? William texted me back later that day, hey again Dave, I'm doing quite well and I'm getting stronger each day. I don't plan to share my struggles with anyone else, it's too embarrassing. And I don't think I really need their help. I can manage on my own. God expects me to do my duty, so it's up to me. And I think that I'm up to whatever God asked me to do. So I texted him back. I'm praying for you, William. Keep in mind that the pride that tells you you can do it alone, that you are strong enough, will blossom into more sin in the future. You need to humble yourself and seek help from Christ and others who love you if you are going to conquer you are not strong enough to beat this, no matter how strong you feel right now. I'll reach out to you tomorrow again to see how you're doing, but be sure to take time today to read the scriptures and to pray. So, as Christians, we don't need to lay for another day beside the pool of Bethesda in defeat. We don't need to give up. In the hope of God's promises, we must rise up and stand firm and be strong and resist the devil and to deny ourselves. But we don't do it in our own strength. Instead, Paul says we are to be strong in the Lord. So may the Lord give us all grace to persevere in the power of the Spirit until we stand before him in his eternal kingdom. And may you triumph in Christ Jesus. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all until we stand before him on that day. Lord God, thank you for pouring out upon us your spirit. And thank you for giving us hope of success in our battle with sin. And I pray, Lord, that you would make what we have considered over the last 10 weeks the foundation of our lives together as believers. May we truly live in the spirit day by day, walking in him, participating with you in your work to sanctify us. I pray, Lord, that you would grant us humility to minister to one another, humility to receive one another's ministry. It is the work of your spirit through them to minister to us. And we pray, Lord, that as we observe the Lord's Supper now, that you would grant us great appreciation for all that your Son has done for us, and we ask in Christ's name. Amen.